what a pleasing, uh, precious blessing to be here and to meet Marty again. I met him many years ago. How many of you uh, were ever a part of Grand Avenue Baptist where I served 21 and a half years or the Cornerstone Church where my son has been the lead pastor for the 14 years since we planted? Any of you old Cornerstoners here? I came to check up on you and make sure you're behaving down here at First Family and treating everybody right and really walking with God. Well, what a great privilege it is to open God's Word and to know that you've been walking through the book of First Timothy. I'm uh, thrilled that uh, Timothy was such a beautiful example. And as you've been going through this uh, book of First Timothy, you have learned that Paul wrote to him because, as Pastor said a while ago, the church is a sea of light in the midst of darkness. It's a sea of love in the midst of hate and suffering and pain and agony. It's a sea of magnificence in the, in the midst of a lot of lacking of magnificence all around us. And so Paul wrote to Timothy and wanted him to understand what the church of Jesus Christ was supposed to look like and what their leaders were supposed to be like. And so he called Timothy his tupas, his example. He called him his mamatas, which was my mimic. And I want you to read a little passage to affirm that with me. Uh, when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, uh, if you have your Bible, open your Bible with me. Hold it up to me so I can see it. I love to see God's Word in the hands of His people. If you don't have your Bible, look on with your neighbor, and if he doesn't have his, he should be ashamed coming to the house of the Lord without a Bible. And so look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 through 17. The Apostle Paul said, I really wanted to come to you, Corinthians, and I couldn't come as I promised to come. I'm going to come, and I will minister to you. But since I couldn't come, I sent the next best thing. Notice what he said in verse 14 following. I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as a dear, as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians or instructors in Christ, teachers, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I'm sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way in the Lord Jesus Christ, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Now, notice verse 16. He says, I urge you to imitate me. Now, in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, verse, uh, the, la the first verse, which is the tail end of the 10th uh, chapter, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And that is that same word, Mimetos, which means you mimic me, you mock me, you be an example of me as I am an example of Jesus Christ. And Paul was able to say, let me tell you, folks, there's nobody in this world that has traveled with me everywhere I've gone and heard me minister and heard me say what I say and seen that I live what I talk about like this young man, Timothy. And he has learned to follow me as I follow Christ. And so Paul wanted to write to Timothy, and he had time, when he spent enough time in jail, he had time to think through all that the Father taught us about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the mystery that's unfolded. And he said, this is the way I want my church to operate. This is the way I want my church to be. 
And these are the types of leaders that I want my church to have. And so if you'll open First Timothy to chapter 3, we will walk through this whole chapter together. And uh, if you'll listen quick enough, I'll get through it this morning. That bunch that was here a little bit earlier were sort of slow listeners, and I didn't quite get through everything. But uh, if you'll listen fast, I'll try to get through this whole chapter. Here is a trustworthy saying, Paul says, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer. Now, that word overseer is the word episkopos. That's where the Episcopalians get their word, the Church of England. And uh, it, it's, our, it's translated in the King James uh, Bishop. Uh, and it's just one of three special words for the man and the men who serve in a plurality of leadership of the local New Testament church. Overseer, episkopos, is this one word that's here. If anyone desires that office, and what that means is he has a heart. His, his heart is stretched. He's one that reaches out, and he seeks this not because he wants to stick out his chest and say, Oh, look at me, I'm the pastor. Oh, look at me, I'm an elder. Oh, look at me, I'm an overseer. Not of that. But he's so humble before God and he's so passionate about God and his church, he stretches himself and he reaches out himself and he sets his heart and his desire is that he would be one of those leaders. <clears throat> I hope all the men in this church this morning in this place will seriously consider that's the kind of man I want to be too. I hope all the ladies here and all the young people here, I hope you will aspire to be this kind of person, whether ever you serve in this office or not. Now, what we're talking about here, as we hold our place there as we're reading, I just want you to back up a couple of pages to Philippians chapter 1. And Paul said in Philippians 1, Paul, Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints, that's all you people in Christ, in Christ Jesus at Philippi. And I'm writing also together with the overseers, the episcopos, the bishops, and the deacons. And so the only two offices of a New Testament church that have been delineated, set apart, designated, and Paul affirms are those two offices, the elder and the deacon. And here he's talking about it. He says, I urge you then, first of all, with uh, I'm telling you, here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a very noble task. Now, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert. He may become conceited <clears throat> and fall under the same judgment as the devil if he's a new convert. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into the disgrace and the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, and not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must 
keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, they may serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate, trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in the faith in Christ Jesus. All I will hope to come to you soon, Paul says to Timothy, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth, beyond all question, he sings this hymn, is the mystery of godliness. Talking about Jesus, he appeared in a body, he was vindicated in the spirit, he was seen of angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and he was taken up into glory. May the Lord really add his blessing to all of our hearts and ears as we listen to the teaching of his word this morning. Now, this is a great office that he says that it's fine, it's wonderful if you stretch your heart for it, if you set your heart on this, but it's necessary, he said, if that's what your desire is, that you understand these are the requirements for a man of God. These are the requirements for the person that's going to step into this office and have this responsibility. Plutarch, who was one of the great historians of the past, writing about all kinds of history, but especially talking about the history of the church or history of, of the ages long ago. This is what he said about episkopos, this particular word, where Paul says, if anyone desires this place, this service, this office, this work, let me tell you what Plutarch said. He said, this word describes the very character of one who teaches little children. Don't you just hate it? the abuse that children are getting in our day and how awful it is that people have to be screened and checked because there are so many perverted people that are abusing little children and damaging their life and their whole future because of the wickedness of their heart. But the kinds of people that we want to teach children is the same kind of man that we want to lead the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's talking about here, episkopos. <coughs> Now, if you read Acts chapter 20, you read First, uh, you read uh, First Peter chapter 5, you read Hebrews chapter 13, you read Titus chapter 1. If you read all of those passages carefully, you see that the person we're talking about here in these qualifications, episkopos, that means this overseer, the elder presbyteros, he's an older, mature man, or the poimen, especially mentioned in Acts chapter 20 and First Peter chapter 5, is a shepherd or pastor. When I moved to Iowa 33 years ago this month on the, about the 29th day of December 1976, whatever that calculates to, it was 17 below zero. Twenty-one men got over there and got all my junk off of that old U-Haul truck and got it into 719 16th Street quick as they could. They didn't want that old boy that had been living in Texas for 20 years where he got his bride after he moved from the Mexico to get discouraged and head back south. And so I served that church for uh, 21 and a half years. And one of the first things that happened was that they started calling me 
Pastor Tom. Now, I'd always been called Brother Tom, but they started calling me Pastor Tom. And Iowans are very good about that. The word poimen means a shepherd, and the word shepherd means one who tends, cares for the sheep, who watches, guards for the sheep, who guides the sheep, who, I say, grubs the sheep. He feeds them. You know what Jesus told Peter to do? Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, care for them. And so this wonderful word is represented by several words synonymously in the New Testament. So when you're talking about one or the other, you're talking about the the same person. He's an older person. He has the same position, this position of oversight, and he does the same thing. What he does is shepherd the people of God. He tends the people of God. He cares for the people of God. Like Jesus, who had three offices as a shepherd. In John chapter 10, he laid his life down for the sheep. He sacrificed for his sheep. That's what the elders and the pastors are supposed to do. Like in uh, the book of uh, Hebrews chapter 13, when he talks about the uh, great shepherd, he equipped the flock. He equipped them. And Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12 says the responsibility of the pastor teacher or the pastor's teachers is that they equip the flock to do what? You tell me. To do what? To do, say it with me, to do the work of the ministry. Say it with me. To do the work of the ministry. What are the elders and the pastors supposed to do? Do all the ministry? Is that what the Scripture says? No. They're to equip the saints, you, to do the work of ministry. Over the 56 years that I've been a pastor, I've just been saddened many times because either I did such a bad job or the guys before me did such a bad job that people call me up and they say, Oh, Pastor Tom, would you uh, take this name and would you call and would you witness and would you do this and would you involve yourself in this ministry? And I want, and I'm telling you as lovingly as I can, When God gives you a vision for somebody that needs to know Jesus, when God gives you a vision for some church ministry that needs to take place, then the elders are to equip you to see to it that that gets done, not to take it from you and do it for you. They're just a, a small group of men that oversee, and their job is to equip you to do the work of ministry. And that's what the great shepherd did. He stood before the congregation and he equipped them to know the will of God in a thorough, complete way. And that's what the teaching of the word and the preaching of the word and standing before the people as a shepherd is all about. And the last ministry of Jesus was the chief shepherd. And what did Jesus say? He that will be chief and greatest among you, what shall he be? What? Be your servant. And that's what the elders and the deacons are supposed to be, as servants of all. We are servants. All of us know that's the truth. In the Old Testament, the man of God, they knew he was a man of God. They knew Elisha was a man of God because he served. He poured water on the hands of Elijah. That's the first evidence that he's a true man and he's a man of God and he qualifies to be an elder or a deacon. He has a servant spirit. She qualifies to be exemplary in the church and to teach others because she has a servant spirit. He's a wonderful son at his house doing what he ought to do because he has a servant spirit. 
Daddy represents the leadership in a family. He's the head. Mother represents the heart of the family. She furnishes spirit and attitude. Children represent the hands of the family, and it's mother and dad's job to give children what they most need. A mom and dad that love God most of all, and then a mom and dad that love each other. If you love God and love each other, you can give your children a sense of security that they will not get anywhere else. They won't get it living in a mansion. They won't get it living in uh, driving Cadillacs. They won't get it if you can hand them the keys to a Porsche when they go off to college. Your children will feel secure and get security whenever dad is head and mom is heart and they are one and they teach the children to be hands. Jesus said, he that will be greatest among you, let him be servant of all. And Jesus, as the chief shepherd, as he's referred to in 1 Peter chapter 5, he said, the shepherds, the pastors, the overseers, the episcopos, the presbyteros, the older mature men are supposed to be examples to the flock. Examples of who? Examples of Jesus Christ. They're to be examples of Jesus Christ in their marriage. They're to be examples of Jesus Christ in their home with their children. They're to be examples of Jesus Christ in the church. And that's what God raises these shepherds up, these leaders up to do, is to be examples like Paul was admonishing the whole church at Corinth and like Paul was affirming that this young man, Timothy, is an example, a tupas, a mimic of me, as I am a tupas, a mimic of Jesus Christ. And that's our call. God wants us to be that too. So look at, first of all, these are the qualifications for leadership in the church. The first qualification he mentioned, what is it? Tell me. Are you reading your Bible? What does it say? Above reproach. Now what that means is blameless, not sinless. <laughs> Any of you ever met a sinless preacher or elder? No, I met a few guys who thought they were. <laughs> I met a few women who thought they were Jesus. I've had men say, you know, I think my wife thinks she's Jesus. Because she never admits she's ever wrong. I've had some women say to me, man, if my husband and I ever get back on the same page after we've been and out, I always have to admit I was wrong because he is so proud. He will never admit he's wrong. And there are women here this morning there are men here this morning. That's exactly the way you live in your home. And let me tell you something. If your name is not Jesus, you're wrong sometimes. And you need to be willing to admit it. Say it with me. I was wrong. Say it with me. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? Say it with me. Will you please forgive me? Now, you see, there are some of you think it will, but it doesn't break your tongue. It will not break your tongue as a husband to say it to your wife and to your children. It will not break your tongue as a wife to say it to your husband and to your children. It will not break your tongue as a church member to say it to some other church member that you've offended and you failed. And the men of God who serve in the position of eldership and leadership in the church, whether it's elder or deacon, they ought to model this attitude of being not sinless, but blameless. We all know they sin. And one of the greatest things that helps a church to grow is when a man of God can stand before the congregation and be honest and transparent. He doesn't have to give the dirty details of his failure, 
But to be able to say before the body, say before his wife, say before his children, boy, I really failed this week. Man, I was really struggling this week. I really had difficulty in this area this week. And when a man who is in leadership or a person who is in leadership in his family is willing to own his own failure and be honest about his own struggles, then other people can approach him and say, Oh, old Pastor Tom, he doesn't live above sin. He knows that he's not Jesus. I can probably talk to him about my struggles because he's got some. You ever admit your struggles? It says irreproachable. That doesn't mean sinless. It means beyond reproach. He's a man of a good report, and he deserves to be honored and respected because his life is impeccable enough that you can't reach and grab handles on his back and yank him back, and you can't find such ugly flaws in his life that if his whole secret life were exposed to the whole world, it would be a shame and a disgrace to the church and to the name of Jesus Christ. What's the second attitude? The second quality of a leader. He's to be the husband of one wife. And what that means is a a one-woman man. It means faithful, monogamous marriage. How important that is in our day when half the church members are divorced and half the people in society are divorced. Now, God hates divorce, but he doesn't hate divorced people. But when it comes to church leadership... The man of God in eldership and deaconship should model this being a one-woman man. And that gets a worse challenge, more difficult all the time. I'm glad that you've already preached through chapter 1, and I was just reading it again this morning because I read a book of the Bible every day. And the book I read this morning before I came was the book of 1 Timothy, and I was reading and struck by 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8, and it says, For the women to dress modestly. And we live in such an immodest day, and the women dress so immodestly in our day. Even in the counselor's office, I'm just shocked and appalled at what I see. And it reminds me of what an old African-American pastor said down there in Texas several years ago. He said, I want to say to all of you young ladies here, if you don't want me to come to your party, stop giving me an invitation. And we live in such a lewd and loose, and we've gotten used to the darkness And it ought to be that at least we can come around church women and church girls and not have to be embarrassed by what we see and not be struggling with temptation because all men struggle with the temptation to lust for the flesh. I don't care what kind of holy pastor they are or what kind of holy man they are. And that's why the man of God, if he's going to lead in the church, needs to model being the husband of one wife and being a one-woman man. He has a heart for Jesus Christ and a heart for his own wife, and that's what his commitment is, and that's what he lives out. I praise God that uh, he has helped me and protected me. I wish I could say I've never failed with my eyes at the point of lust. In these 70 years that I've lived plus seven months, uh, nine months, uh, 50 years of being married plus nine months, I'm so thrilled that I can stand here before you and say for 50 years and nine months, I've been absolutely faithful to my wife. But I'm sorry that I can't say I've been absolutely pure and I've never failed with the lust of my eyes. But I can say I have never clicked on a porn site on the computer. And I want to continue to be able to say that. But I want you to know this morning this old 70-year-old man can do any wicked, ungodly, immoral, 
unjust thing that's possible to be done. I am capable of doing it. And the only thing that's going to keep me from it is my walk with Jesus Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and this faithful walk with the woman that I've been married to for 50 years and nine months. The third, the third quality is he's to be sober. That means temperate. And what that used to mean uh, was uh, just free from alcohol. It, connote, it connoted abstinence from alcohol. But what it means now and the expanded understanding of the meaning of that word is sober, sober-minded, clear-headed, mentally and emotionally healthy. Here, it's this wider application. And the man of God who serves as a church leader, whether it's an elder or a deacon, ought to have a sober and a sound mind, a clear mind. His mind is not muddled with drugs and alcohol and a bunch of other compromises in his life because he daily seeks to walk with God. The fourth thing that he talks about is self-control. That means thoughtful, integrated thought. It means prudent. It means wise judgment. It means discreet. It means common sense. It means to have a sound mind. You know why a lot of people don't have a sound mind? Because they have bitterness. They won't forgive. They don't have a sound mind because they have guilt. They won't confess. They don't have a sound mind because they have stubbornness that they won't yield. And if those three areas in your life, you already talked about those in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. If those three areas are compromised in your life, you grieve the Holy Spirit, you quench the Holy Spirit, you resist the Holy Spirit, and it clouds up your mind. You're not free to think right. You're not free to feel right. You're not free to feel right. You're not free to act right. And that's why the leaders ought to model all of this truth. The leaders also, the next, the fifth quality is to respectable. And that means orderly. Oh, wow. This means a well-ordered demeanor. It means well-behaved. It means orderly fulfillment of all your duties. It means ordering your inner life in such a way that when your inner life is in order before God, out of your life springs wonderfulness and order, just like the cosmos. That's the Greek word that's used here. It's cosmos. Isn't it amazing? The order of the stars and the planets and the order and the majesty of God's creation here. And that's the kind of life that the man of God is supposed to model. And when the pastor asked me to come and bring this message, boy, I had to start studying this stuff, pastor. And I really got convicted at this. And I even cleaned up my study because of it. Because I'm the kind of guy that can junk up a junk room. I'm the kind of guy that can junk up a junkyard. My wife's nice and orderly. She hadn't always been, but for many, many years she has been. Keeps a beautiful, nice, tidy house. And I just tell her, honey, just close the door so you don't have to be ashamed of anybody seeing in here, okay? And just leave me to my mess. But, and she doesn't nag at me, but she just looks and looks discouraged sometimes. But when I was studying this, God convicted me that I need to please God and also need to please that woman and rake out my mess. And so I did. The next word is hospitable. Hospitable means a love of strangers. In an elder's official capacity, his duty is to have an open house to all the traveling evangelists that came and stopped there because of the wickedness of the motel stuff in those days. And he was to have an open house to all of the church members that might need to come over for a meal or a visit or whatever. And that's a big challenge that the pastoral leadership, the deacons, ought to model 
Hospitality. Hospitality. We don't do that much in our day. We might invite someone after church to go out and eat with us, but we don't dare invite them over at the house. I've been over at people's houses, and they'll say, oh, excuse this, excuse that, excuse the other. I said, ma'am, I'm not a house inspector. I just came over for a little fellowship. And I wouldn't have noticed any of those things probably if you hadn't pointed them out to me. But we are so afraid. Our pride is such as ladies that we'll be embarrassed if this lady sees that I don't have everything just neat and tidy every moment of the day. Well, probably all of us could do better in that, just like I can do a lot better in my room. But if you've got room in your heart, you've got room in your home. And if we don't have room in our home, I've been in some of the neatest, poorest places and had some of the sweetest fellowship because the people had a spirit of hospitality and they ministered to me. And then I've been in some very elegant places where I wasn't made very at home because really the people didn't have a spirit of hospitality. If you've got it in your heart, there's room in your home, and we need to get back to that, especially church leaders need to model that. And then it says the seventh thing, and seven is the perfect number, and this is one of the most very important things for a church leader especially an elder, he's to be able to teach. What that means is skillful teaching, skillful teaching. He knows God's Word thoroughly. He's ready to teach it at any time. He's able to teach it privately or publicly. And some elders aren't teaching elders, and they're not very good at standing up and speaking publicly, but they ought to be able to communicate God's Word in a private manner and make the message clear in a private way to the people of God. And that's one of the things an elder can do. He's able to communicate God's Word because he models it with his life. That's very, very important for the man you put in this place. If the church is going to grow, and you've got a young, growing church here, if the church is going to grow and be healthy and endure and really make a testimony for God in the world, it's going to have to be well-fed on God's Word. It's going to be have to know God's Word well enough that the people of God are protected. There's so many lies, so many false philosophies, so much junk going on. Everywhere you look, <clears throat> there's all this junk. And if people aren't grounded in God's Word, they don't know the truth of God's Word. They're not full. They're hungry. And they're empty. And so they're open for deception and lies. And that's why it's so important that the shepherd, the elder, the overseer needs to know and be able to teach the Word of God. Then the next word, number eight, <clears throat> not one who sits long at wine. He doesn't have addictions. He's not a drunk. Uh, he's moderate in all things. The ninth one, he's not violent. He's not pugnacious. He's not a fighter. He doesn't have a bad, irritable attitude. He's not given to blows. He's not given to violence. You know, it's amazing. If you're a violent, if you're an irritable old guy at your house, one of the things that guarantees that you have rebellious children is the anger of fathers and pastors. Let me tell you, I used to be an angry pastor. I preached mad. And the reason I preached mad, I didn't even know who I was mad at. I thought I was mad at my dad because he is a drunk and he abused my mother and he abused all of us 11 kids. Well, when I was 34 years old and losing my children from God and the church, I discovered what Exodus 34-7 means. The sin of parents are visited on children to the third and the fourth generation. I know how that happens now. I used to wonder how drunks like my dad raised preachers like me and how preachers like me raised drunks like my dad. I know now the way it happens is through bitterness. 
And I thought I was just mad at my dad. I said, I'd never be like that old son of a gun. But the Bible says when someone hurts you and you don't forgive them, you become stuck to them. And Romans 2, 1 and 2 says you become like them instead of like him. And even though I'd been a pastor for 14 years, my children were turning away from God. Married 14 years, a pastor for 16 years. My children were turning away from God, and I never had learned this message. And I stretched out on the floor of my home, and I cried my heart out one day, and I was praying. I said, God, my children are turning away from you. Please help me. And he taught me forgiveness. He said, Tom, you glad you're going to heaven? Yeah. You glad I know Jesus? Yeah. You glad I forgave you of all your sins? Yeah. You glad I let you marry Marie and Father Amelia, Harold and Troy? Yeah. And then he said, which of those things would have been possible if it hadn't been for your drunk father, Paul Nesbitt? <laughs> the very man I most hated was the very man I should have been most thankful for. Because God used him to get me in this world. And God was willing to risk me in that man's home so that I could come to know Jesus. He didn't want my dad to be a drunk, but my dad was. And the people that have hurt you that you won't forgive cause a cancer in your heart, cuts off your prayer life, cuts off your love life, and finally it will destroy your health. And I was a pastor. When I preached, people just thought I was passionate and fiery, but I was angry. And I didn't even know who I was mad at was God. I was trying to love God with this hand and preach for him and serve him, but I had this fist doubled up, shocking God in the side, saying, God, I don't like the way you got me in this world. How dumb can you be? Pretty dumb. And that day when God showed me that, I bawled my guts out on the floor of our home for two hours I pulled the convict numbers off my dad's chest. I opened the prison door of my heart where I had him encased, and I set that man free that day. And when I got through praying for two hours, forgiving everybody that had hurt me, every deacon that ever disappointed me, every person that ever let me down, every kid that made fun of me at school because I couldn't read, when I set them all free, when I got up off the floor that day, guess who else was free? I was free. Free to love God. Free to pray, free to love my wife, free to love my children, and free to ask my daddy to forgive me and make friends with him and finally lead him to Christ. And when he prayed to receive Christ and he and I had the best 10 years of any, best relationship of any of his kids, the last 10 years of his life, that wasn't the greatest thing that happened. When I started honoring my father's position in my life, God put pressure on my sons and my, my, sons and my daughters to start honoring me. I didn't want to be like my dad. Both my sons are preachers of the gospel. They wanted to be like me. My daughter's more like me and her mother. <laughs> Either one of those rascals put together. But never happened until I got rid of the cancer of bitterness in my heart and quit excusing my irritability and my anger. The next attitude is gentle, being gentle and yielding instead of controlling and demanding. And then not quarrelsome. Then it says, not a lover of money. And my, how God's people need to learn to be generous. And the only way that you can ever destroy the power of money is to give it away. 
And if you haven't learned to be generous, if you haven't learned that tithing is not a place to stop, that's the place to start in the place of God. I knew an old preacher who was 80 years old, an old Lutheran pastor who lived next door to me up in Ames, who didn't learn to start honoring God with his tithe until his housekeeper taught him after he is 80 years old. Isn't that a shame? God have mercy upon us. If the church, if the leaders of the church don't honor God with their money, how can the congregation ever honor their God with the money? How can the world ever get the message if we don't learn how to be givers instead of takers? Not a lover of money. Don't be a greedy. Make sure that the guys that are in leadership are not greedy. Then it says, one who manages his own family well, children who obey him with proper respect. And that's very, very important. Let me tell you men this morning and every pastor, you can never have children who respect you if your wife does not respect you unless it's just a miracle and those kids are just special kind of kids. Because children tend to get the direction from their dad. They tend to get their spirit and their attitude from their mother. And if your wife doesn't respect you like Ephesians 5 says, it's probably because you're a sorry leader in her life. And I talk to couples like this all the time and couples before I marry them. Ephesians 5 says before you get married, you're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit so you can be the head that you're supposed to be as the man or the heart you're supposed to be as the woman. And many women come to me and say, Pastor Tom, my kids are so rebellious, but I know it's because of my husband's sorry leadership. And I have to duck my head and say, I'm sorry, ma'am. Your husband may be leading sorry, and everything does rise and fall on leadership. But despite your husband's sorry leadership, children tend to get their spirit and their attitude from their mother. And probably they're picking up your attitude toward their father. And one of the ways that men know their wives don't respect them, when men start to talk, their wife starts another conversation over here because she knows, ah, what he's got to say isn't worth listening to. And let me tell you why that's true. Because we men haven't gone home and done our job. But we ladies need to do our job whether our men do or not. And God never gives the woman the responsibility to be the leader in the family. God will never lead your family through you as long as your husband is alive. And so it's important that you understand this principle that the man who's going to be a leader, whether he's going to be a deacon or a pastor, he's able to lead his own family and it has to start with his wife. And he's a good Ephesians 5 man. That he's filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you show you're filled with the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 5 says these are the three evidences you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Number one is that you worship. There are a lot of men who are pastors who never worship with their wives. A lot of deacons who never worship with their wives. A lot of church members that never worship with their wives. Speaking to yourself, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. If you pray for your children, you can chase a thousand demons away from them. If you pray with your wife for your children, you can chase 10,000 demons away from them. That's why the devil doesn't want you praying with your wife. And the greatest need in a woman's heart is have a man who's a spiritual leader. And we men have flunked. We've fallen. Even leaders in the church don't go home and do this. And as a result, the children don't respect us. And a man is supposed to lead in such a way, stand before his family, to rule in his family in such a way. This describes a man who carries himself with such perfect blend of dignity and courtesy and independence and humility that his wife honors him. His, he's not stern. He's just firm. He's, he's a God-honoring man. And men, I, I want you to know that I failed in this area terribly for years as a pastor. 
My wife came to me one day when we'd been married 20 years, and she said, Tom, I don't think you're ever going to get it. I want you to know that you're an absolute flop when it comes to meeting my emotional needs. And I was so proud. Hey, I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to have all the answers and none of the problems. So I just kept doing my same old stupid stuff. And I wouldn't humble myself or go somewhere and get some help. So finally she came to me, and she was so discouraged, and we were in the deepest valley of our marriage. And she said, Tom, I'm just sure you're not ever going to get it. You don't have a clue about how to meet my emotional needs, and you won't do anything about it. And so I'm not going to divorce you. We agreed we had never mentioned that. I'm not going to leave you. I wouldn't do that to God, the church, the children. I wouldn't do that to the ministry. I wouldn't do that to Jesus Christ. But I am so discouraged with you that I've just been asking God to let me die. Now, man, I did that to my wife. Well, she got my attention that day, and I went and got some help. There are men sitting in this room. You're just like I was. You don't have a clue about meeting your wife's emotional needs. Do you know your wife doesn't think you can hear if you're watching television? My wife didn't think I could hear if I was reading the Bible. You can't meet a woman's emotional need, which is what's most important to her. Though that's not what's important to you in the marriage. You can't meet her need if you don't look at her, if you don't listen to her, if you don't talk to her. And if you don't look at her and listen to her and talk to her and give your ears and your eyes and your mouth to her and have conversation with her and learn how to communicate with her, then it's very difficult for her to respond to you physically in that Corinthians passage that says her body belongs to you also says your body belongs to her. And you can't expect her to meet your needs if you're not willing to lay yourself down to meet her needs. And if your wife does not respect you, your children will not respect you. If your wife is not happy and glowing, your children will not be happy and glowing. And that's why it's very important that we understand why God said if you're going to be a leader, whether it's an elder or a deacon, you need to be able to manage your home and your children are believers because you are so effective in walking with God and loving your wife that your children want to follow you after Jesus Christ. Because how do you qualify to lead the church of Jesus Christ if you can't even lead your own family to walk with Jesus Christ? A man ought to be able to stand in this place or in the elder's position or the deacon's position in the church and say, you want to know how to walk with God? Watch me. You want to know how to love your wife? Watch me. You want to know how to raise godly children? Watch me. There are many of us that can't do that. And we don't even know why. We don't even know what the problem is. And we're too proud to go get any help. I thank God for those men who came forward and cried this morning and prayed with me and said, Hey, man, I've wounded my wife so bad. I need some help. What do I need to do? And they made appointments with me to get some help and do something about it. The next word is to rule, to manage, to guide your house. If he can't do that, he can't do that for the church. And then he said, not a neophyte, a new plant. And then he said, he must have a good testimony and reputation out there in the community. And then it says, then the whole community will not be ashamed or turned off by the witness of that church. Well, all of these things are so important, and you guys didn't listen fast enough, and so I can't uh, talk much more. But I just want to make appeal to you that the, these, this special position of elder and shepherd and pastor is for a plurality of leaders in your church. And these are God's qualifications. 
And you need to pray for them and support them by prayer because every one of them has a target on his heart and his back. And the devil goes after church leaders because smite the shepherds and the sheep are scattered. And then the, those who do the practical service, that's what the deacons are. They have so very similar requirements, and they serve underneath the leadership of the pastors. And it's very important that the men that you raise up in leadership in this church, that you empower for these two positions, are men that qualify. Now, that doesn't mean that they are perfect in all these things all the time. They're not sinless. They're just blameless. And when you put your hands on them and say, yes, I want you to serve as a deacon, and yes, I want you to serve as my elder, and I will submit to you because you're submitted to Christ, and I will listen to your instruction and let you help equip me because I want to know the will of God, and I want to be the person, the sheep, the church member that Jesus Christ wants me to be. It's a big responsibility, folks. This is one of the most important chapters in all of God's Word, especially for you as a church, as you think of empowering your leaders and then submitting to their leadership so they're effective with you and help your family to be effective in this community feels the power of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer.